Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. Who are the drug manufacturers responsible for the high price of prescription drugs? Tim Powell has the latest information on this new war on drugs. In other news, two employees have blown the whistle on their former employer. They allege $450 million in ill-gotten EHR incentive payments. Fane whistleblower attorney Mary Inman will have the latest news on this developing story. Could artificial intelligence detect fraud in social health insurance programs? Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach will explain. Nancy Beckley has all the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And health care attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. We have much news to report, but we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. I'm reporting again from the airport, so sorry about the background noise. Now, last week, you probably noticed I missed Monitor Monday. As Chuck probably noted, I was on assignment. And I was actually on a Caribbean cruise where I was asked to present to a group of case managers who were cruising while earning CEUs. Also speaking was a past guest on Monitor Monday, Alan Fink-Samnick. They planned lectures for the mornings when we were at sea, so there was no excuse to miss them. Now, the most interesting talk to me was a discussion by Eric Bergman about his work coordinating medical care and transportation for patients who became ill in foreign countries, either Americans on vacation or foreigners vacationing in the U.S. I had no idea the costs involved. I also had no idea about the complexity of picking travel insurance. For example, your insurance may pay for you to be transported to the nearest approved medical facility where you can safely receive care in a foreign country, but not pay for you to be transported back home to receive that same care. Imagine being stuck in Europe or Thailand or Australia when illness strikes. You'll get good care, but you'll be away from your family for weeks while you recover from surgery. I will never leave the U.S. without getting comprehensive travel insurance, and neither should any of you. Now, last week was also the annual meeting of the American College of Cardiology, and there were some fascinating studies released. And there's one that may affect medical practice in many hospitals, and that was a study demonstrating that the TAVR, or transcatheter aortic valve replacement, which up to now has only been done in patients who are prohibitive risk of surgery, is safe and effective in younger, lower-risk patients. You can expect your cardiologist to be knocking on your CEO's door asking to start a program. But be sure you are there in those meetings to ensure that your program meets the Medicare MCD and any insurer requirements. There are minimum standards to be met, registry reporting, and so on. And if you're a patient contemplating having one of these done, remember that expertise comes only with experience. Do any of you want to be the first in your hospital to have it done? Now, the last couple of weeks, I've got several questions about the self-denial and rebuilding process. And it made me realize, while we're all intimately familiar with it, I don't think the billing staff received the same exposure to the new rules. 
And many hospitals, they don't realize that you can self-deny a surgery that was improperly done as inpatient and rebuild it to Part B. So they write off the whole state because that had been the rule for a long time. But that changed with the two midnight rule in 2013. Whereas the surgery is billed with the ICD-10 PCS code on the inpatient claim, the rebill called the 121 claim type can now include the CPT code for the surgery. And revenue code 0360 is acceptable for rebills. So that claim will be paid just as if the surgery was done as outpatient. So be sure your billing staff is doing this right, especially with total knee replacements that you self-deny. That's a lot of money at stake. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is the Vice President of R1RCM. And here now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday Listener Survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. All righty. Thank you, everybody. And hey, Chuck, good morning to all, to all of our listeners this morning. Spring has sprung here on the Milwaukee River Parkway. And my hot topic for this morning is the Medicare Administrative Mm -hmm. Contractor Satisfaction Indicator called the MSI. And many of you that subscribe to your Mac's email listservs have noticed that they're obsessively at the Mac asking you to fill this out. And I'm not a provider, but I clicked on the link and I thought I'd take a peek and let you know what they're saying. It says the Mac Satisfaction Indicator Survey is designed to measure your satisfaction as a Medicare provider with the performance of your Mac. It will not measure your satisfaction with other contractors, specifically the Railroad Retirement Board, the RACs, the CERT contractors, or the ZIPICs, the SMERCs, or the qualified independent contractors. They describe a random survey to take 10 to 15 minutes to complete. Throughout the survey, they use the term interchangeably providers and suppliers. One thing of interest is it says, think about the performance of your Mac with respect to handling medical reviews, unrelated to racks or zippics. So they're asking a great deal of information and suggest that other people in your facility may want to tag on. So I got pretty far in the application process and I'm not a provider, but I would encourage everybody to provide feedback to your Mac on this MSI survey. And Emily, if you could bring up our poll right now. And our poll this morning is brought to us by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. And the poll is, do you subscribe to your Max emails? Click number one if yes, yes. Click number two, yes, if you subscribe to multiple Macs, for example, you might have two different Macs or the A and the B or the DME or the Home Health and Hospice Mac. And no, if you don't subscribe. And you don't have to be a provider in order to subscribe. Chuck will be back a little bit later in the program to give the poll results. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. So coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, Ed Roach, and Tim Powell. This is Monday. It's March 25th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information on a new healthcare publication focused specifically on the RACs and other third-party auditors. Introducing the Auditor Monitor. This essential guide is filled with the latest audit news, including all the RAC auditors and what issues they've been approved to audit. Learn about types of audits you can expect and how best to defend yourself. Learn more about hot topics like telehealth, 340B, and the Pepper Report. Auditor Monitor subscribers will receive one issue per quarter. 
Don't hesitate. Subscribe to Auditor Monitor, your complete source of healthcare auditing. Now available on the Rack Monitor Store. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment. Here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And good morning, David. David, what's risky this morning? Good morning, Mr. Buck. So, first off, I'll put in a final request for questions that people have uh, about interacting with uh, Medicare Advantage plans or with private insurers for Thursday's webinar. And if you want information about that, you can sign up under the Handouts tab. So, at the American Health Lawyers Association meeting last week, David Wright, the Acting Deputy Director at the Center for Clinical Standards and Quality from CMS, described forthcoming guidance from CMS that's going to revise the policy related to shared space in a provider-based setting. First, I want to start by saying a huge thank you to Mr. Wright. The fact that the government officials take time out of their day to interact at these conferences is truly a great thing. I can't say I agree with everything Mr. Wright said, but it was a polite and helpful dialogue, and I am immensely grateful for it. Now, the issue involves situations where a provider-based location shares space with a clinic or another hospital. Over the last few years, CMS regional offices have taken some very aggressive, and I would say unsupportable, positions asserting that the existence of any shared space like a common waiting room or a common hallway prevents the hospital from considering that location to be provider-based. Perhaps the highest profile example of this occurred in Montana, where the government asserted there was a large overpayment because the shared space meant that the space wasn't hospital space. Sometime in the very near future, a transmittal is going to explain that shared waiting areas and hallways are now going to be considered acceptable. I want to emphasize that this will not be a regulation. Um, it's part of the manuals, which have far less significance. It sounds as though the new focus is going to be on whether patients must walk through treatment areas like an emergency room or an ICU to reach the shared space. My understanding is that the guidance will indicate if patients from Site A walk through patient areas of Site B, CMS will question the provider-based status. In addition, if two organizations share a medical record, the government will view that as problematic. Simultaneous shared staff will also be considered a problem. Staff, according to, this, according to Mr. Wright, are going to be able to work for one organization, say, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and the other on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but some temporal separation will be expected. Mr. Wright specifically mentioned that each location would be expected to have separate emergency response equipments like crash carts. Now, the supposed rationale for this is accountability. And I've got to say, I don't quite understand that. I think you could have accountability by stating that if anything is wrong with a shared service, both facilities will face penalties. That would seem to increase rather than decrease accountability and safety. So while this change is welcome, and it's going to certainly help, I still assert it doesn't go far enough, and that CMS could allow more flexibility while still furthering patient safety goals. For example, I don't understand the argument that a combined medical record somehow interferes with health and safety. Having organizations maintain parallel medical records seems riskier than having a combined record. There's been a huge push for clinical integration. Perhaps more importantly, I still think that much of this guidance exceeds CMS's regulatory authority. Regulations prevent there are specific regulations that prevent independent diagnostic testing facilities and DME vendors from sharing space. 
The provider-based regulations contain no similar prohibition. Therefore, I think the entire space-sharing limitation exceeds CMS's authority. Now, this guidance is promised soon, though no one knows what soon means. Um, Mr. Wright did mention that anyone in a provider-based dispute now should ask the regional office if it's applying the still unpublished but more lenient guidance because CMS expects them to do so. So, Chuck, the lyrics don't work perfectly, but I'm so appreciative of the government officials for taking the time to attend this conference and engaging in a great dialogue that I'm going with Dido's Thank You. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm at Fredericks Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Could artificial intelligence be used to detect fraud in social health insurance programs? Here now to explain is Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach. Good morning, Ed. Hi, Chuck. Today we'll take a look at the use of artificial intelligence to ferret out Medicare fraud. We read about AI every day. It's one of those strange new technologies that seems to be growing everywhere, but no one can quite understand what it really is. Many technology leaders have expressed concerns about the social dangers of AI. The factory took away the livelihood of the artisanal shop. The machine took away the soul of the industrial worker. Automation stripped away the functions of factory floor labor. The computer took away the jobs of untold numbers of clerical workers. In the same way, artificial intelligence threatens to take away the livelihood of large segments of the professional class. In the future, AI will be in charge of operating deadly weapons during wartime, killer robots. AI will literally be able to kill you. Many have called AI the greatest threat to humanity. Humanity will not need to kill itself. Instead, It will invent a technology that will do it for us. So naturally, scientists and entrepreneurs are working diligently to harness AI to detect healthcare fraud. Here in the U.S., Medicare pays hospitals using a prospective payment system. The base rate corresponds to over 700 different categories of diagnosis using diagnosis-related groups. CMS looks for errors, including mistakes in coding, abuse, such as upcoding, waste, such as ordering of excessive tests or health care, and fraud, the billing for services or supplies that are not provided. Four to 500 employees work in the CMS CPI group. It includes a Medicare integrity group, Medicaid integrity group, data analytics group, provider enrollment operations, and program integrity group. Artificial intelligence is used through application of rules-based systems, anomaly analysis, predictive analysis, and social network analysis. In the rules-based approach, a set of conditions are defined that, if satisfied, tag a claim as fraudulent. Examples would include impossible day of admission or a claim for a previously stolen Medicare number. 
Anomaly detection is a data mining technique that identifies rare items, events, or observations that raise suspicions by differing significantly from the majority of the data. In Medicare, anomaly detection looks at the deviation of a claim from the average or from its peer group. For example, a provider may file significantly more claims in a single day than 99% of its peer group. Predictive analysis is based on regression models that establish characteristics of a fraudulent provider. Social network analysis is based on identification of links between healthcare providers. For example, if a health provider is linked to an address of a different provider who in the past committed fraud, the system will be alerted. CMS has 16 or so third-party administrators that process around 5 million claims each day, so you can imagine all of the computer power being used. In addition to using these methods to analyze all incoming claims, other information is used, such as data from complaints. Each model creates a series of alerts that associates each with a level of risk. This eventually triggers boots-on-the-ground activities, including site visits and medical chart review. AI is your friend. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence at Barraclue, New York, LLC. Two employees have blown the whistle on their former employer, Community Health System. They allege $450 million in ill-gotten EHR incentive programs. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman joins us now with the latest news on this major story. Good morning, Mary. Good morning to you, Chuck. As the use of electronic health records, EHRs, has expanded at a rapid pace, so too has the fraud associated with the systems. An EHR is a digital version or database of a patient's paper charts. The systems allow for real-time sharing of patient-centered records, better record-keeping, and the ability to make information easily shareable. However, yet another whistleblower lawsuit accuses an EHR company of defrauding the Department of Health and Human Services. A recently unsealed complaint in the Southern District of Florida alleges that community health systems, which operates 127 hospitals in 20 states, and its EHR provider, MedHost, violated the False Claims Act when they collected HHS incentive payments that were meant to encourage healthcare providers to implement EHRs that met certain quote-unquote meeting full use requirements. To receive the payments, a provider must attest to HHS that the criteria are being met. Community health systems received over $500 million in incentive payments. According to the whistleblowers, two former IT executives at Community Health Systems, these requirements were not met, and thus the hospitals did not qualify for the incentive payments. The complaint specifically alleges that the EHR software led to doctors ordering incorrect medications or dosages, risking catastrophic patient harm. Community Health Systems and MedHost have categorically denied all of the allegations in the complaint and noted that they are unaware of any instances of patient harm. The Department of Justice has not intervened in the case, noting that it has not yet completed its investigation and is not yet able to decide whether to later intervene in the suit. According to the government's filings, it will continue to investigate the allegations brought forth in the whistleblower's complaint. 
This suit is just one in a recent string of cases that demonstrate fraud against the HHS incentive program. In May 2017, eClinical Works settled a False Claims Act case for $155 million. In that case, which we reported on on Monitor Monday, the company allegedly misrepresented the capabilities of its software when the EHR was being tested for CMS certification, which comes with its own incentive payments. Instead of developing EHR software that met the relevant requirements, eClinical Works allegedly designed software to pass the certification requirements without actually meeting the underlying certification criteria. In November 2017, an unsealed suit against Epic, another EHR provider, alleged that the company designed software that double-billed Medicare for anesthesia services. For those in the healthcare field, EHR programs are an ever-increasing part of the business, and unfortunately, so too is the potential for fraud associated with the software. In this case, two community health services whistleblowers were exceedingly well-placed to spot the alleged fraud. One was responsible for managing EHR implementation at community health systems, and the other oversaw the building of EHR systems for hospitals that community health systems later acquired. Vigilant eyes of IT professionals, doctors, nurses, coders, and hospital employees will be essential in combating the increasing number of alleged frauds involving EHRs. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. So, who are the major drug manufacturers responsible for the high price of prescription drugs? Tim Powell has the latest information on this new war on drugs. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Chuck. And CMS has released their latest CMS drug spending dashboards. And while the dashboards are interactive, you can look up specific drug data, we took the larger approach and download and analyze the actual source data. The dashboard has the following data sets for the periods ended 2013 through 2017. Medicare Part D spending, Medicare Part B spending, and Medicaid spending. For each drug and manufacturer, the data includes total spending, total dosage units, total claims, total beneficiaries, the average spending per dosage unit that's weighted, the average spending per claim, the average spending per beneficiary, a change in average spending per dosage unit between 2016 and 2017, and the annual growth rate in average spending per dosage unit from 2013 through 2017. We specifically looked at Part D drugs with spends over a billion dollars. These drugs turned out to be focused in the following diseases. Type 1 and type 2 diabetes had the list. Next is blood clots, COPD, followed by type 2 diabetes, multiple myeloma, myeloma, psoriasis, hepatitis C, nerve pain, multiple sclerosis, hyperthyroidism, breast cancer, leukemia, renal failure, arthritis, and dry eye disease. Now, here are some critical trends that we noted. First, the increase in average Medicare costs for these drugs vastly outstripped inflation. So Relto, for instance, a drug for treating blood clots, had an increase in market price for a monthly supply from $258.82 in 2013 to $461.40 in 2017. So Relto also saw an increase in Medicare Part D payment rates for the same monthly period 
from $130.91 in 2013 to $192.46 in 2017. This yields an increase in market costs and Medicare costs of 78 to 47% prospectively. Perspectively. Over the same period of time, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, wages only increased 12%. This means that the average cost of the drug was increasing four to seven times faster than, than the inflation rate for salaries. Why do we use salaries? We use salaries for two reasons in our analysis. First, because the cost of the drug is borne by people who earn wages. Secondly, since the drug was fully developed, it made sense to us to use salaries since the main driving cost post-production should be wages. We noted that marketing appears to influence drug spends. Advertisements for drugs with over a billion dollars in Medicare spending include Sorelto for blood clots, Eliquis for blood clots, Harvoni for hepatitis C, and Restasis for dry eye, and these seem to flood our media screens. As a final comment, it seems that many of the costly drugs relate to disease conditions heavily impacted by our own behavior. One of the biggest causative factors in COPD, for instance, is smoking. Similarly, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes correlates with America's struggle with obesity. As a last comment on something that may impact future drug development, we noted that actually curing a disease does not always help the drug company's bottom line. Harvoni seems to have been a victim of its own success. Sales for, the, for Harvoni's drug treating hepatitis C fell from $4.4 billion in 2016 to a mere $2.5 billion in 2017, as the patients that took the drug were cured. We can't imagine that pharmaceutical companies have not been given pause by this development. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Rec Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim is a regulatory expert. And a program note, be sure to be with us next Monday. That's when the president and the CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni, are going to join us as we continue part two in our series on the new war on drugs. Now it's time for the Monitor Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy. All righty. Well, um, we're going to report on our Monitor Monday Listener Survey if people are participating with their Max email listserv. And 48% chunk of our listeners this morning subscribed to their Max emails. 19% of our listeners this morning subscribe to multiple Mac emails, and 32% do not subscribe. And as I mentioned, you don't have to be a provider or a supplier to subscribe to those emails, and it's a great source of information. Uh, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nancy, very much. Looking at that survey, which is brought to you today by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors, Nancy, anything stands out in the survey that uh, you didn't expect to see? No, I think this is just exactly where I went to see it, and I just wanted to um, let people know that they can subscribe, even if they're not a provider. Very good, Nancy. Thanks very much. David Glazer, you have a webcast coming up this Thursday. You want to give us some highlights? Because I think it's going to be a very fascinating one. I do, Chuck. And so on Thursday, we are going to talk about how you interact with Medicare Advantage plans and private insurers generally, just sort of the legal and regulatory remarks. Um, and Chuck, normally at this point, we would go to questions, but this isn't a normal Monday, as you know, and Nancy has a message that she'd like to deliver on behalf of the entire Rack Monitor team. All right, Chuck, on a very, very personal note, because of the stoic professionalism with which you've conducted yourself, I'm sure our listeners don't know what a tough time this has been for you. The entire Monitor Monday team wants to extend our sincere condolences on the death of your wife, Pam, last week. We hope that her memory is a comfort and a blessing. 
Thanks, uh, Nancy, very much. And uh, David, thank you as well. And that is going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and I thank you very much for being with us today. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, David Glazer. Be sure to tune in to his webcast coming up this Thursday, Dr. Ron Lurz, Mary Inman, Tim Powell, and Ed Roach. And thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. We look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next Monday. When Maureen Testoni joins us in, I hope you're going to join me this Thursday for the David Glazer webcast. Until then, everybody, have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.